Well, it's good. Week after week after week, seeing different faces of people that have been gone for a while, and now you're back, and we're, we're overjoyed by that. And uh, looking forward to what the Lord has to share with us from his word this morning. We continue uh, talking about the life of David, so we're in 2 Samuel, First and 2 Samuel. You want to turn to that? Actually, the sixth chapter of the second book of Samuel is where I want to be this morning. The First uh, Samuel 5 begins by saying, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God. And uh, then there's a whole lot of things that are occurring there. And now what we find is David's going after the Ark. And that's where we are this morning. But in the sixth chapter of Second Samuel, verses 1 through 7 is where I want to be. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. David brought together out of Israel chosen men, 3,000 in all. And he and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by name the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Aio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Lord, at his blessing to the reading of scripture, be seated. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So I want to wrestle with this a little bit with you. It's a difficult passage, and I promise that when we're done, we will connect this to the larger story of Scripture, and we will connect it to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been singing about. Um, on the surface, the, the story goes like this, to fill in the blanks of everything. King Saul is murdered in battle, as God promised. Now, David is crowned king of Israel. And David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of Jerusalem. Twenty years previously, the Philistines had captured the Ark, carried it away, but every time they put it into one of their little temples with their gods, their, their god, Dagon, would fall. And they'd pick him up and put him back and they put, put him and then in the morning he'd fall again. So that was what was happening. And then it shattered a couple times and they had to glue him back together. You know, had to glue God back together. So they were trying to find a place for an ark. So what happened was every time they, they started putting it in different towns because it just wasn't working out well. But every time they put the ark in one of the towns, there were plagues, there was tumors, there was things that would break out in the people. And they began to pass the ark around from town to town and city to city. 
And the people of Ekron, who see the ark coming to them, and down the road, they, uh, they say, don't bring that thing here. <laughs> don't bring the ark of the covenant to our town. Uh, you know, just take it someplace else. It brought so much stress that they put it on an ox cart. They pointed it toward the direction of Jerusalem. They said, go. Just, just, just let's get rid of it. Let's just get rid of it. The next 20 years, the ark was stashed in a house of a man named Abinadab. And in 2 Samuel 6, we read that one morning, 30,000, think about it, 30,000 armed soldiers show up at Abinadab's door and they say, we want the ark. Abinadab says, great, take it. Get it, get it. You know, it's been stressful, the whole thing. It's been painful. But as the Israelites move the ark on a new ox cart, the ox began to stumble, and that's where we picked it up here, Usa reaches out to study the ark. He drops dead on the spot. The party's over. And everyone goes home. David's ticked off, if you read the next verses there. And he's asking the question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He, he wants this. And then the ark went to a home of a different individual, a man named Obedidom. And God blessed his entire family while the ark was there. He wasn't even an Israelite. He wasn't even an Israelite. God's blessing his family. David sees this. Three months later, he tries again to get the ark. And this time, things went as planned. David is happy. David's dancing furiously with all of his might before the Lord. This story raises a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Number one, what's the big deal with the ark anyway? What's the big deal? And why did David want it? And then secondly, why did God kill Uzzah? What, what was going on there? And then thirdly, what difference does this make to my life? What difference does this make to me? So first of all, what was, what was the ark and why did David want to have the ark? The, the ark of the covenant was, and we've got a picture of it there, a box. It was four feet in length, not, not very big, Two and a half feet wide and deep, overlaid with gold, and solid gold lid was called the mercy seat. And the ark symbolizes something for the ancient followers of Yahweh, just like the bread and the cup symbolize something precious for us today. But after delivering Israel from Egypt and slavery in Egypt, God instructed them, that's where it began, make this ark, because you're going to be in the wilderness and I want to be with you. The tabernacle, place the ark in the tabernacle. And so God is giving them instructions. And the God, this, this ark was of, in a place of, of intimacy for them. And he was with God's people. And then God said in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then a few verses later, he says, I will be there to meet you. That's where we'll meet. That's where we'll talk. I will be there to meet you on the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you. In other words, real spiritual reality would happen there. Closeness to God, the presence of God was the promise of the ark. So this is, this is very important. It was a place where the glory, 
literally the heaviness, the, the weightiness, the, the experiential reality of God dwelt with them, and they felt it. They felt it. So why did David want this ark so badly? Yes, probably for some political reasons. There's always some politics involved in things. But we also know that David hungered for intimacy with God. You know, we, we know what David was like. Listen to his prayer from Psalms 27 to verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and see him in his temple. One thing I desire, this is, this is, this is paramount to me. That's David's heart. That's David's heart. Not just have data about God or information about God, who God is, but to have the kind of relationship that Paul talks about in the New Testament, which is to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. An intense relationship. And the ark represented that spiritual reality, that presence of God. It's one thing to know God loves me, my sins are forgiven, and I and beyond happy. It's another thing to have the reality of that explode, you know, for God so loved the way we read, to explode in your, your reality. And you feel the weight of that, the strength of that, to have God's love and, and power governing your life more than anything else so that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. doesn't matter what other people say. Even if you're criticized for something or, or it doesn't go the way people talk, who cares? When you're walking with Christ, you're walking with Christ. God is more real than the opinions of other people in your life. And David needed that intimacy with God and he would need it every day of his life because he became king and, and he had trouble every day. Every day. And that's why he wanted the ark. The second thing, and, and he, he was in leadership, you know. And the second thing is, why did Uzzah have to die? Why did he have to die? In the Bible, in Exodus 25, God made it clear that there are certain rules that involve the ark, moving the ark. You know, first of all, God said it had to be carried. It had to be carried. And that's why there were the golden rings that were on the side of the ark where you put the poles through. It had to be carried. And we, we see that in other parts of the scripture. Second, it had to be carried by a group of people called Korahites. And these were like the, the green beret of the Levites. They were a special priestly class of people. And then thirdly, God said that no one was to touch it. Don't touch it. So the people David sent disregarded all those rules. They didn't carry it. They stuck it in a, on a cart. And there's a, probably a bunch of them that put it up there, so why, why didn't they die? You know? Um, but it's more than that. It's more than these rules. It's actually m much deeper than these rules. Yes, he broke the rules. Yes, he broke the rules. And many people say, well, that's why I don't like religion. 
That's what I don't believe in, in this, you guys talking about God all the time, you know. What's, what's this, just a bunch of rules. A rules for this and rules for that, bunch of rules. That's why I could never get close to God. He's a little bit touchy about stuff, you know. He's just waiting for me to break the rules and then whap, zam, he's going to get me. God's going to get me. And many of us live with a deep-seated dread of that kind of a God, that our relationship with God is based on keeping the rules. And we break the rules every day. We break the rules every day. But as we think about it, breaking the rules is just a symptom of something deeper. It really is. It's about a relationship with Almighty God. It's about relationship. That God is different. He's holy other. He's not like us. He's a holy God. And that means that there is a, a chasm between God and us that, that is difficult, a huge, uncrossable chasm. And you can't just say, I'm a good person, I'm, I do nice things, I go to church, I'm moral, so now God owes me. Now God owes me. That's Usa's approach to God. That's his approach to God. God didn't smite him for one rule violation. It was an irreverent act. There was, there was deeper things going on here. Part of what is he's ignoring God. He's ignoring what God placed before and what God said about the ark, how the ark was going to be moved. But it was much, much, much more than that. Eugene Peterson says, he says this, and I quote, Uzzah's death was not sudden. It was years in the making. Touching the ark was the final straw not the particular and singular sin. It was a heart response. It was a heart response. Was God harsh? Was God mean with Usa? Absolutely not. I mean, he's dead, but absolutely not. God is just. He's a just God. But for years, God had chosen to forgo justice and extend mercy to Usa in all of his life. And Usa knew about this holiness of God. He knew the holiness of God. And he knew he just couldn't come crashing into the presence of God. He just didn't do that. He didn't do that. But he decided to ignore what he knew. Ignore what he knew. And he loaded the ark, put it on an ox cart. Why? Because in his mind, he knew better than God. He, this, is, this is going to be easy. Just throw it on the cart, get to oxen, and away it goes. And because in his mind, he knew better than God, verse 7 says, the Lord's anger burned against Usa because of his irreverent act. as I looked all this up and was, was looking at it more closely, the, the, his irreverence here carries the idea of being profane. It's profane. Contemptuous would be another word toward God. Devaluing God. Insulting God. You know, either way, the glory, the honor of God are lessened. You know, and here's what I think. Here's what I think. This is huge. This 
is huge. And to me, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. It touches the heart of God. It touches the gospel. It touches the gospel. In most all the comments, I mean almost every one that I looked at, and I looked at many, uh, it, it, it was like talking points, and it all read kind of the same, and I, and I was thinking about it. It read that, that God struck down Uzzah because, and then, then it, would, and it would say, well, you know, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. Uh, well, we don't like this. Don't like it. Don't like it. And then they'd go on and they'd say, well, you know what? Uh, even uh, non-Christians, they come to the scriptures and say, I can't believe in a guy like this. What is this all about? I don't like this. A guy who just puts his hand up, it was probably instinctive. You know, so, uh, just sticks his hand up there, keeps the ark from, God kills him. So he didn't follow the rules exactly. I don't want a God like that. I don't want a God like that. And all the commentaries, they speak this way, on and on, the same thing. Um, this is bad. People don't like it. People don't like it. Uh, this passage is troublesome. <laughs> I mean, how many times I read that? There are an awful lot of people who don't believe the Bible because of passages like this. So we don't like this. You know what? I don't care. I don't care. This has always been true. This has always been true. Listen to Ezekiel 12, verse 2. Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious people who have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but they won't hear. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But the natural unbelieving man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. They're absurd. They're illogical. They're illogical to him. And he is incapable of understanding them because they are spiritually discerned. Are they, what scripture is saying, they're, they're unqualified. They're unqualified to judge spiritual matters. Right? They don't care about the cross either. They don't like the cross. They don't believe in the miracles of Jesus. They don't like the resurrection. They don't believe in that either. But everybody's going to heaven. That's the one thing they agree on. Don't care about all this stuff, but everybody's going to heaven. Right? Quick thought about that. Um, and people question you, they'll question me. They say, well, you know, do you believe in God? And I say, well, I absolutely believe in God. Absolutely believe in God. Well, do you believe in the Bible? Yep. Yep, I do. I'm banking my internal soul on the Bible, on the Word of God, what Jesus says there, and the Lord of the Scriptures. He made heaven and earth, and God created me. I believe that. And here's the one they always go to, and I love this, and maybe you've had this happen to you. They say, you know, what about that big fish? Don't they? What about that big fish? that swallowed a man, and they don't know the name of it, but, you know, that big fish that's there, big enough to swallow. Do you believe that God can make a fish big enough to swallow a man? Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. You're an intelligent individual living in the 21st century where we're splitting atoms and going to the moon. You, 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 you think God can make a fish big enough to swallow a man? 
Now, people say there's no such thing as a stupid question. I think this is a stupid question. <laughs> I think this is a stupid question. Let me put it like this. The God who made the sun and the moon and the stars created everything that there is. If he wanted to do, he could air condition and carpet that fish and put a lounger in there for me. No? You know? You can't put can and God in the same sentence. It doesn't make sense. Because you've already disqualified God because by definition, God has no limits. There's no limits. The question isn't, can God? The question always is, Is there a God? And if there's a God, he can. Whatever. He can. If God is, he can speak. If God is, he can visit this planet. If God is, you can put your faith in him. He can change and transform lives of people. It's more than Usa touching an ark. It's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. This is where the the nation of Israel met God. I mean, this is huge. This is where the high priest, only once a year, would come on behalf of the people of Israel, trembling, shaking. But even the high priest could not go in before the Ark of the Covenant until there was the sprinkling of blood. When I was a kid, I remember growing, and um, I was kind of a church rat, you know, my dad being a pastor, and I was there. But I remember, and I don't know what was happening, but I remember as a group of kids, and I still remember this. I don't remember all the details about it, but I remember it because it was kind of traumatic. But uh, I was talking about communion. And, uh, and I was saying, uh, you know, I said, <laughs> I said something like, you know, I like it. Little juice, little bread. Ha, 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 ha. And my dad was close by. And, and it wasn't a happy time, <laughs> as I remember. And I didn't say it out loud, but I said, you know, don't have a cow, Dad. Now, that's called compounded stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what that was, you know. I'm not alone. There are church people, been going to church for years, they're like that. They can come for years where God speaks to them, speaks to their hearts, their lives, but have no appreciation for the effects of that in their life. Huh? Huh? What's, what's, that, what's that gold box that's up there? Oh, Ark of the Covenant. Interesting piece of furniture, right? Isn't it? Interesting. You can be in the very presence of God and not notice. Not notice if your heart isn't seeking Him.
God set the standard here very early in Scripture. Your sin is so egregious to God. It's, it, it's, the, the, the hatred towards sin is, is so uh, intense that in order to be forgiven, we've talked about this, blood had to be shed, right? Blood had to be shed. Something has to die. It's that, it's that hard. Remember the scripture? Put it on the screen. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You know. Why would you expect, let me go back to what we were saying, why would you expect, other than the empowering of the Holy Spirit, a non-Christian to get this? An unbelievers to get this? This is about the holiness of God. The otherness of God, the cabal, the, 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 the glory, the glory, his majesty, his greatness. This is about the heart of God with his people. It's about his presence. This is absolutely connected to Jesus and the cross. Absolutely. My mind went there immediately when I was reading this. And I won't share that. Listen, a little information. The ark of the covenant when, was the centerpiece of furniture in the tabernacle, the place of worship. It was not just in the holy place where all the priests gathered. It was in what? The most holy of holies. It was there. And all those priests that were there, they couldn't even go in. They couldn't see it. It was the only piece of furniture in the holy of holies. Not, nothing else. And over the ark appeared the Shekinah, the glory of God, the Kabbalah, the, the, the glory, the heaviness, the, 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 the immediate, personal, raw, royal presence of God. It's there. The face of transcendent God where he spoke to the high priest. You can use all those terms. They're used in scripture. There was a huge veil, a curtain, if you will, that that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was called, sometimes called a veil, sometimes called the curtain, but it hid a holy God from sinful people on the outside. And as I mentioned previously, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest parted this veil and he entered the holy of holies to go into the presence of God. And sin was such a serious matter that if all the preparations were not carried out to the letter, he's dead. You don't approach God. Dead. Everything had to be just the way it was intended to be. And listen, this is the reason I feel when I'm looking at this, the story of Usa is a precursor to the gospel. To the gospel of what we know and what we believe. On the cross, as Jesus was about to die, he said what? It's finished. It's finished. But how do we know that? How do we know that? The veil is ripped. The veil is torn, and he cries out, it is finished. Matthew, the writer of the gospel of Matthew, is Jewish. And he wrote his gospel that at the same moment that Jesus died, a 60, everyone thinks of the, everyone thinks of this curtain as a small, it's not. It was 60 foot long, 60 foot long. 
The veil was torn from top to bottom. It's finished. And then there's an understanding that the veil is ripped. The veil is torn. It had been hanging there for years. Years. This curtain or veil was for the purpose of separating the the most holy, which held the Ark of the, the Covenant and the mercy seat. Sitting on top of the Ark, solid gold lid. This was the place for the propitiation, it's a difficult word, a propitiation of sins by sprinkling of innocent blood. What does that mean? Propitiation simply means a way of appeasing God. God is appeased by this. The the wrath of God is appeased by this for the sins of mankind. It provided satisfaction to God for the sinfulness of man. The veil was a symbol of the separation of of God and, and, and mankind as well. So that veil just blocked everything. Access to God. Jesus died, Scripture says, and all the Gospels report this, at the exact moment, the exact moment that the sacrifice for Passover was held. The exact moment. At that same time, Jesus breathed his last breath. The veil of the temple is torn, ripped asunder. The veils being torn symbolizes the fact that mankind's separation from God had been removed by Jesus, who was the supreme sacrifice. And since Jesus was without blemish, without sin, kept the law perfectly for us in his life, his death was the satisfaction of the wrath of God, the propitiation, the satisfaction of God. So we read in Isaiah 59, too, declares that your iniquities, your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. That's what was happening. That was happening. Now that Jesus, once and for all sacrifice, was given, we now have access to the very throne of God. We have access to the throne of God. The veil was not, again, now think about it. Most people don't know this. The veil was not a small thing. It was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. And here's the kicker. It was four inches thick. It was four inches thick. It was so massive that it took 300 priests to manipulate it and to move it and do whatever they needed to do with it. The point is that no one could simply tear it. No one could do that. It took God to tear it. It took God. See, the removal of the separation of God and man could not be done by humans. It had to be done by God. God had to do this. It it was only God alone who would do this. No one can remove our separation from God but God himself. John 2, 1 John 2, 2 says this. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, the sins of the whole world. Since Jesus' death atoned for our sins, Jesus' sacrifice allowed for the veil to be torn 
and thus the separation between God and man is able to be removed. The significance of the veil being torn from top to bottom is the fact that Jesus' sacrifice makes it possible for us to come to God. We have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Our sins no longer separate us from him. Today, for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, you have access to the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it beautifully. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our high priest today is Jesus Christ who continues to intercede for us. Day after day after day, intercede for you. It goes beyond words and it gives us something words will never give us because it's an act. God acted. God did something. God stepped into our world and he accomplished something. You know, there's an old song that says, towering over the wrecks of time. He did something. And you can't prove love by words. You can't prove, even God couldn't do it with just words. You know, remember God said, come, let's reason together. Beautiful Old Testament passage. Let's reason together. Come, let's reason together. Let's, let's begin reasoning. But that didn't prove love. And again, he sends the prophets. Here come the prophets into the world to be his voice to men, but not even the word of God burning and blazing from the lips of these prophets. Couldn't do it. And the Father sent Jesus preaching, teaching, challenging people with words they'd never heard before to trust God's love. And even that, think about it, even that. And when it seemed that the last word had been said and God himself could do no more suddenly from top to bottom. <laughs> suddenly from top to bottom. An act of divine revelation. The veil is rent. Right? The death of Jesus gives us the very heart of God. The eternal God. Because it's not words. It's not just words. It's a deed. I, 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 I see it in history. I see what it is. It's something God has done in history. And against that, I can put all of my doubts and it, it'll just slap them all down. The cross is where it happens. It's where it happens. It takes me past the, the secrecy, past the, the, the clouds of the inner sanctum and the darkness of the mercy seat, and behold, God's heart of pure love. Pure love. The rent veil opens up the Father to us. You see, the currency of love is blood. It's blood. Without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood. And now we can approach God. Now we can approach God. Now we come to God. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. His heart and our heart before him. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he died, didn't he die? 
He died. I mean, that, that's real. He died, didn't he die? But early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, a murdered Savior, and you and I are the murderers. You and I are the murderers. Jesus died because of our disobedience. So it, it, it's not like, you know, God, lighten up. God, lighten up. Lighten up. No. His son died. His son died. Jesus died for us. God is severe because we're dead in our sins. God is severe because sin is eternally severe. God's grace is profound. We deserve death, but the only way we get life is through him. And guess what? We get it more abundantly. It's magnified. Usa thought he'd do it his way. God said, don't touch the ark because my holiness dwells there. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you touch it, you'll die. Remember David's words in verse 9. We didn't get to verse 9. But verse 9 says, uh, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now David gets it. He knows David gets it. He understands the chasm between him and God. That, that how, how, can, how, can I get, how can I get this? I want the presence of God in my life. I, I need this. I want that. He, he understands this chasm. David understood that oh, God is holy and we are flawed and we are sinful people. He got it. That we're worse off than we ever dare to admit. New Testament puts it this way. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. That's us. So why did David wind up dancing? I mean, I mean he's, he's going crazy. If you look at that passage, he strips down to his boxer shorts and he's jumping around in front of everybody. He's dancing. He's, he's going wild. He's going crazy. God-exalting song that he's singing, dancing before the Lord. David didn't just understand the chasm and the bad news. He understood God's mercy. He understood God's grace. So he danced and he danced and he danced. The scripture says, with all of his might. Reckless abandon. He didn't care what anyone else thought. Didn't care what people said about it. He had the ark. He had the presence of God. And he danced because the glory, the presence, and the grace of God was so heavy in his life and his, it was palpable. He could feel it. He was rejoicing. He just was rejoicing. That fullness, that presence has been offered to us. Do you feel that? I mean, do you in your life? See, how does it affect me? It's so much more glorious than God in a box. You know? You know? We were talking about this Friday night, right? Don't you know that your body is the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. The ark is gone. The veil is torn. And now Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Do you feel that? Does it lift you up? Do you know that in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, every sin has been nailed to the cross that you have? You're free. We sang about free, free, right? Free, free. You can approach the same God that David met, the same God that struck down Uzzah. You can approach that holy God and say, Father, Father, I hurt today. I'm in trouble today. Life is hard. I've fallen into sin. Help me. Help me. Save me. Heal me. Cleanse me. Be close to me. Guide me. And he will. And he, that's what it means to you. And that's what the story means to you. He will. He will. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray together. Father, every page of this holy scriptures points to you, to your presence, to your love for us, to the provisions that you've made for all of us, for our lives, beyond all the things of this world. Lord, we're, we're just thankful that we have a God who speaks into eternity. That even today, Lord, we know from the word of God that you're preparing a place for us. We don't care, Lord, what other people think. We believe in Jesus. We believe that you sent your son to die. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for that precious, precious gift. So, Lord, we come to you with, with, with battered lives. We come to you with sinful lives. We come to you with the pain of the battering of this world. We're tired many days. We're just tired. We struggle on many different fronts. We're thankful for the word of God. Come unto me. Come unto me. All ye who are weary, trouble laden, I'll give you rest. And Lord, we thank you for that. We have experienced that over and over again. But we're a stubborn people, Lord. And we need it again. Fill us again. Strengthen us again. Walk with us. Direct our hearts, our lives. Impress upon us your majesty, your glory, your weightiness. 
Father, we ask this for each person here. Come to him. He will. He will. He will. Come to you. So we pray for that, our Father. We're thankful this morning for this, this passage of Scripture. Blessed to our understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.